Well, it's so good to be back at Woodside. I do enjoy my old stomping grounds around here and to see people I know but not necessarily remember their names. I'm at that age now, sorry. This series is called Timeless, Old Testament Stories of Flaws and Faith. And it's interesting that the Old Testament that seems such an ancient book still has timeless applications. And when we look at today's subject, we will hopefully see that, yes, it's an old story, but it's timeless. It's still true today. And so we will look at 1 Samuel 1 to 4 at the story of Hophni and Phinehas. I know you all are very familiar with them from many Sunday school lessons. Comes right after David and Goliath, Hophni and Phinehas. Um, you might not be that familiar with it, but still, there is a lot of truth in what God words, uh, God's Word records for us. And it's very applicable to today's situation. During the last few years, there have been way too many cases of Christian leaders that have been discredited because of financial scandals, because of sexual sin, or because of abuse of power. And that's very sad. It's deeply disturbing, and it's toxic for our church communities. It causes whole ministries to break up, churches to close down, and a whole generation of young people to become completely disillusioned with the church. And of course, it provides additional ammunition for opponents of Christianity who have been saying all along, oh, those Christian leaders, they're just in it for their personal gain. They're just fleecing the sheep. It's also hypocritical. They're just in it for personal pleasure, for more power, for, for their own prosperity. And yes, it is revolting when we hear again and again about these leaders falling. And we're wondering why God keeps calling people to head up different ministries when so many of us mess up so badly. It's all so far removed from that ideal that Peter portrays in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 5, where he calls individual believers living stones that are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then he emphasizes this even more in verse 9, saying to them that you are, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's our task and privilege as a holy priesthood, to represent God to the people and to draw people closer to him. But unfortunately, we have a long history of failure in that department. 
already Adam and Eve's son, Cain and Abel, they seem to function as priests by bringing sacrifices, bringing offerings before God. And shortly thereafter, Cain kills Abel. Then there's the first high priest of Israel, Aaron. Soon after his ordination, he facilitates idol worship. They worship the golden calf, and Aaron is instrumental in that. Then his two sons, also priests, Nadab and Abihu, they offer strange fire before the Lord, and then they're consumed by that fire because of their negligence and irreverence. Maybe the best example of a not-so-holy priesthood were were the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, sons of Eli. We will get a bit more familiar with them today. In many ways, they mirror church leadership in our Western world. And it's not a pretty picture. So today's message is not going to be a feel-good sermon. I'm sorry to say that. It's more about raising awareness of those three top temptations, as I call them, that afflict especially Christian leaders. And that's these temptations of prosperity, of pleasure, and of power. We're consumed by them. We're enamored by them. And we're distracted from our true purpose which is to be priests, holy priests, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let's read that story today. We're doing a lot of reading in 1 Samuel, and we begin with chapter 1, verse 3, where it simply states that Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord at Shiloh. And there is no evaluation at this point, just stating there were priests to the Lord at Shiloh. When Israel under Joshua conquered the land, they first put up headquarters at Gilgal in the Jordan Flats. And then later on, Joshua moved the tabernacle up into the hill country to Gilgal, and that became, uh, from Gilgal to Shiloh, sorry, and that became the central uh, capital, the religious capital, the spiritual capital of Israel. And the initial chapters of 1 Samuel recount the story of Samuel, who becomes the last judge of Israel before the monarchy then takes off. Samuel was essentially trained by Eli, the high priest, to become a spiritual leader, to become a judge, a priest, a prophet to the people of Israel. While Samuel becomes a great example of a spiritual leader who was in touch with God, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are described in 1 Samuel 2 verse 12 as useless men. They did not know the Lord. Useless men. It can also be translated, that word, as worthless or base or ungodly, as rascally 
good for nothing, of no profit. That's those two guys. Even their names give us an indication of their disposition. Hophni comes from a word that means fist. And so many commentators say his name means boxer, pugilist. Phinehas comes from two words, meaning mouth of a serpent. And so it speaks of the deceptiveness of that person, of toxic communication. So already the names of these two men give us a hint that they are physical and verbal abusers. And that's borne out by the text later on. It's terrible to have people like that in spiritual leadership, people who abuse others physically or verbally. And people who are also described as not knowing the Lord. Of course, they knew about the Lord. I mean, they were priests. They knew all the prayers. They knew the liturgies. They knew the tabernacle performance inside and out. They were very familiar with that. They knew the stories about God. They were professionals at it. But they did not know the Lord personally. And they didn't care. They were in the religious business for their own sake, for their selfish reasons. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want, the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. This is also very strange to us who are not familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, with the traditions of the priesthood, the meanings that are behind that. So let me give you a bit of biblical context from Leviticus chapter 7, verses 29 to 34, where the regulations for the priest's share are actually outlined. That's the priest's salary. It's outlined in the Bible. And here it is. Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as his sacrifice to the Lord. With his own hands, he is to bring the offering made to the Lord by fire. He is to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. 
You're to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. The son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their regular share from the Israelites. So it was clearly outlined who is to have what. But you see what happened here with Hophni and Phinehas? They not only played the fork lottery with that three-pronged fork where they had the chance of getting three times as much as their actual share, they also took the fat that clearly belonged to the Lord. In Leviticus 3.16, it says that all fat is the Lord's. That was outlined before that already, very clear. So they robbed both the people, took from their share of the fellowship offering, which they were supposed to eat with their families, and they robbed God of His portion. And we can understand the temptation. The smell of barbecued fat is just so delicious. And I'm sorry for all the vegans here and vegetarians, but it is a wonderful smell. I, I can really enjoy it. And the priests were exposed to that 24-7 in the tabernacle, but they weren't getting the fat. That belonged to the Lord. They smelled that all day long, but that was not for them. And so, because it's so good smelling, that's what we want. We want marbled steak. That's barbecued, not the boring boiled meat. And in a similar way, there's a lot of fat slash, slash money in Christian ministries in our rich Christ, uh, Christianity in the, in the West. And there's the temptation for those in ministry to skim off more than their share, to take from what belongs to the people and to God and use it for themselves. But that sin is very great in the Lord's sight, for it means treating the Lord's offerings with contempt. In verse 29, this abuse is described as literally kicking God's sacrifices. They were kicking God's offerings. The only other use of that word in the Bible is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 15, where Moses says about Israel in a prophetic vision that the people grew fat and kicked, filled with food. He, referring to Israel, became heavy and sleek. He abandoned the God who made him and rejected the rock, his Savior. That's what prosperity can lead to very easily. Rejecting the rock. It's interesting that the Bible points out that Eli was heavy. Usually the Bible doesn't, you know, get into details about physical appearance of people, but for Eli, it was pointed out that he was heavy. He and his sons had grown fat and kicked 
filled with food that had become heavy and had abandoned, rejected God. Their prosperity had contributed to them falling away from God. What a sad thing. And the similarities to our situation today are obvious. And they become more and more apparent as we follow this story. There are more. Look at 1 Samuel 2, verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. As back then, so today, not only are there numerous abuses of finances within Christian ministries, there's also many who are accused and proven of sexual misconduct, who have these scandals within the church, great many leaders within the church in recent years. And it's just so sad. They have been found to coerce women to provide sexual favors, to have affairs with them, even sexually abuse minors. It's disgusting. It's tragic. No wonder the church isn't taken seriously anymore. Who listens to the church these days anymore with this kind of an example? But the church is still interested in exercising influence. But instead of living out a spiritually attractive life, many spiritual leaders cling to political power. They want more control, more power. And they want to try to exercise political power. And that happens both on the political right as well as on the political left. And instead of becoming mouthpieces for God, the politically motivated religious leaders simply become an instrument of worldly leaders. They sing their tunes and no longer preach God's message. Notice how this plays out with Hophni and Phinehas. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel got defeated by the Philistines and they lost 4,000 in battle. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that it may go well with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Instead of asking why God brought this defeat upon Israel and following a course of repentance, all these leaders wanted to do was to have the ma magic box come along with them. It's a very superstitious thing. Bring the magic box, the Ark of the Covenant, and then we will win. Then we'll have an advantage our, over our enemy. And for that, 
They needed the priests because the priests were supposed to carry the ark. And the priests, of course, Hophni and Phinehas, they were probably quite glad to do that because now they were the center of attention of a whole nation, of a military campaign. That would uh, boost their image. They had a much higher profile all of a sudden. Great for them. And at first, that seemed to work for the people. The people of Israel were very excited to have the ark in their midst and shouted so loud that the Philistines got scared. They said, we're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of the Covenant was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That's the kind of thing that happens when religious leaders are roped in for political purposes. When people try to control God for their own uh, purposes, for their political agenda, when they try to hitch him in front of their wagon. It's very interesting. It's even portrayed in the movies, an oldie but goodie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, so we're staying with the subject of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, Remember that scene where Indy and his girlfriend are tied up around a pole and the French archaeologist, the counterpart to Indy, dresses up as a priest and wants to use that power of the magic box, the Ark of the Covenant, for Nazi purposes. And what happens in that scene is that all of the Nazis are exterminated and only Indy and his girlfriend survived because he said to her, don't look. This is that holy God. You cannot hitch him in front of your wagon. So let's get back to that, that story. When Eli heard about this total defeat, the major losses in the capture of the ark, we read in verse 18 that when the messengers mentioned the capture of the ark, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He thought the big issue was the departure of the ark. The magic box is gone. Now we've lost it all. His daughter-in-law had a slightly better perspective on this. She heard the news about the defeat, the death of her husband and his brother. She went into labor and gave birth to a son whom she named Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark. The glory has departed from Israel. The Shekinah glory, the very presence of God has departed from Israel. That's the issue. It's not 
the piece of furniture that's gone. It's God who has left us. And when a society has sunk as low as Israel at the time, it's easy to conclude that God's very presence is no longer there. It seems as if God has left his people. And sometimes it feels like that in our Western church. Has God left? All these things happen. So many leaders fall. God has left. But it's not so. He is still in control. And he's already got a man in the background who is ready to help God's people get back on track and experience him. But the people have to be ready first. In 1 Samuel 7 now, quite a few chapters further on, they are finally at a point where they are serious about seeking God. We read there, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. The little boy Samuel had grown up by that time. We read at the end of chapter 3 that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and he let none of his words fail. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Yet while Samuel spoke the word of the Lord to all of Israel, he said what God revealed to him, it took the Israelites more than 20 years to eventually come to a place of repentance and return to the Lord, to actually seek him. When they finally sought the Lord, Samuel needed to make sure that they were actually serious about this. I've preached to you for 20 years, and you keep going back to the old stuff. Are you really serious about it this time? So the message translation words Samuel's exhortation in a way we can apply to our, our own lives as well. Then Samuel addressed the house of Israel, chapter 7, verse 3, if you are truly serious about coming back to God, clean house. Get rid of the foreign gods and fertility goddesses. Ground yourselves firmly in God. Worship Him and Him alone, and He will save you from Philistine oppression. Samuel wants to see a bit more than just a, a somber mood or an emotional revival meeting. He wants to see action. Cleaning house is what he calls it. And he defines it as getting rid of strange God and the fertility cult that's all around them. There are certain things we just have to clean up, cut out, get rid of. whether it's an unhealthy attraction to material possessions, whether it's ungodly sexual conduct, 
or whether it's an unrestrained hunger for control and power. We need to clean our personal house and we need to clean up our leadership structures in our ministries and churches in the West. Otherwise, I'm afraid we cannot be much of a blessing to others. And once we've turned away from these negative abuses, we need to turn to a positive focus. Because when you're cleaning house, you're not just removing the filth and the dirt, you're also restoring order and beauty to the place. You're redecorating, putting flowers up here. It's just so much nicer now. We are to ground ourselves firmly in God and worship Him and Him alone. We are to serve Him with all of our heart, mind, and strength. And such a focus will not only keep us away from a compromising downhill lifestyle, but it will bring meaning and beauty and will make us true representatives of our Lord and Savior Jesus. We need to focus on Him so that He can have preeminence in our lives and make us into the kind of people that truly reflect Him. That's what He invites us into because we cannot be holy by ourselves. We need the Holy One within us. And so He wants us to come to Him where we do that, where we listen to his call, to his invitation, where we come to Jesus, a not-so-holy priesthood can be transformed into that holy priesthood that Peter is talking about in his first epistle. And I'm reading now that passage from the New Living Translation. It says there, Peter says to us, you have become living building stones, for God's use in building His house. What's more, you are His holy priests. So come to Him, you who are acceptable to Him because of Jesus Christ, and offer to God those things that please Him. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of the darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were less than nothing, now you're God's own. Once you knew very little of God's kindness, now your very lives have been changed by it. That is God's purpose for you, for Woodside, for all of us in Christianity. He wants us to reflect Him. Transformation is possible through Jesus Christ. May we come to Him. May we offer to God those things that please Him. May we show others the goodness of God and to be truly representing our Lord and Savior Himself and drawing others to Him as we live out this very attractive lifestyle. Let's do that together. Amen. While the worship team comes up, let's pray and let's stand.
Lord Jesus, this morning we already dedicated ourselves to you. We sang three times, whether we really meant it or not. Today, I choose to hear your voice and live. And that's what you want for each one of us, to truly live. And that's only possible by listening to your voice. Lord, may your word continue to go out to us again and again. And if it takes 20 years, Lord, let it happen that we finally hear, listen, obey, turn to you, and that we would recognize you as the one who you really are, the Holy One, the glory present among his people, that it's all about you and that people see you. May that happen here through us, through Woodside. May your glory be displayed. Lord, we cannot do that on our own. We need you, and so we ask to fill us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.